Would you go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter 7? As you're turning there, uh, how many of you know who Matt Lang is? He's not here this morning because he's having some sort of earwax-related issue. But uh, I was talking to Drew and Brett about it out in the lobby, and Brett suggested that Matt may have skipped this morning because he knew that we were covering Nehemiah 7 today. And as we read it, I think you might understand why that is. Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed... I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing still, or while they are still standing the guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes." The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpareth, Bigvi, Nahum, Benah, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172, the sons of Shepatiah, 372, the sons of Era, 652, the sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Zatu, 845, the sons of Zakai, 760, the sons of Benui, 648, the sons of Babai, 628, the sons of Asgad, 2,332. The sons of Adonikam, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2,067. The sons of Aden, 655. The sons of Ader, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Heshum, 328. The sons of Bazai, 324. The sons of Harif, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netopha, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth as Mavith, 42. The men of Kiriath Jerim, Chephira and Biroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The men of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harum, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721. The sons of Sanaa, 3,930. 
the priests, the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Cadmiel, of the sons of Hadava, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ader, the sons of Talman, the sons of Ekub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Ziba, the sons of Ashufa, the sons of Taboath, the sons of Keras, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padan, the sons of Labana, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Reiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uza, the sons of Pasea, the sons of Bazai, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nafusheshim, the sons of Babuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Bazlith, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkas, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tamah, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jala, the sons of Derkan, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shephatia, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Bekereth Hazabeim, the sons of Ammon. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzila, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzila the Gileadite and was caused by their name. Those, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of the followers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. And we thank you that your word is inspired. 
And it is for our instruction, even when it's just a list of names and numbers. That, for whatever reason, you inspired Nehemiah to write this down. And for thousands of years, your people have preserved your word because you preserved it. And today, we have the privilege to read and the privilege to try to pronounce this list of names in Nehemiah 7. Now we pray this morning that you would send your Spirit to help us to value your Word even when it seems insignificant or unimportant. That we would recognize that even a simple list can speak to our lives and can shape the way that we view you and the way that we view ourselves. Jesus, we thank you for all that you've accomplished on our behalf. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as I was charting out the sermons for Nehemiah, next to Nehemiah 7, I just wrote a boring list. As I go through the passages, I break them up. I usually make some note of what the passage is about, what the main point is. And for this one, at the time, that was all I had. This is a list, and it's tough to apply to our lives. As you can tell, it's a different kind of passage. And the reality is, is that most of these details aren't going to directly connect to our lives. It doesn't matter to us that the sons of Big Vi were 2067 today. If anyone can come up with some sort of practical application out of that, you should come up here and I should sit down. And so what we're going to do as we go through this passage is we're going to kind of look at some of the highlights, some of the the big things that shape the way the story of Nehemiah is moving forward in the book. And then we're going to kind of take a step back and talk about how the the main idea and, and the main purpose for this chapter within the book can actually apply to our lives. While the details aren't necessarily significant for us, I think the main idea of what this chapter is here for is significant. And that main idea is is kind of what we talked about briefly at the end of last week, and that's that even though the wall is done, right, the very first thing that we read about in Nehemiah 7 was that the wall's done. They built the wall. It's as wide and as tall and as complete as it's supposed to be. They hung the gates in the doors. It's, it's complete. The city is secure. Nehemiah has done what he came from Susa to Jerusalem to do. And yet, we're in chapter 7. Including this one, there's seven chapters left. So we're not even halfway through the book. And the main thing that the book's supposed to be about is already done. The story's not over yet. And that's the main point of this chapter. That's why this chapter is here. The walls are done, but the story isn't over yet. How many of you, I'm expecting this number to be low, how many of you are familiar with the show Quantum Leap? Right. This was a show in the late 80s, early 90s, so most of you didn't even exist. 
But what the show is about, the premise of the show, one summer when I was in college, uh, I did an internship in Houston for like 10 weeks, and then so I had a few weeks of post-internship pre-HLG where I just sat on my parents' couch and watched reruns of Quantum Leap on TV. So I'm drawing on that now to explain this passage. The premise of the show is there's this guy who's a physicist, and he's doing experiments in time travel, and something goes wrong, and he gets sent back in time to some random location. And what happens is this guy, Scott Bakula, is the actor, and he is just thrown into these people's lives. He, like, takes over their body. And then while in their body, he has to do specific things. He has to right these wrongs that happened in their lives so that he can move on to the next place. He fixes some problem, and then he leaps, that's where the title comes from, to the next person. And he just goes on and on and on, and he's hoping that eventually he's going to get home. And within that story, he has to show up and figure out what the problem is so that he can fix it and leave. But often, what happens on the show, it's fairly predictable, is he fixes some problem that he thinks is the problem that he's there to fix. But then he's stuck. He doesn't, he doesn't move on. His friend is there with his little, you know, 1980s impression of an iPad, and he's saying that, I, I, I thought this was what you're supposed to fix, but it's not. So he's got to figure out what it is so he can move on. Nehemiah 7 is like one of those episodes. He came from Susa to Jerusalem to fix the walls. That was the problem. Jerusalem is deserted. The walls are broken down. The people are in great shame. He came because Hananiah, the guy he's talking about in Nehemiah 7, came to Susa, told him what was going on in Jerusalem, told him about the walls. Nehemiah said, something needs to be done. I'm going to go there and I'm going to fix it. He goes there, he fixes the walls, as he tells us in the beginning of Nehemiah 7, the walls are done. But Nehemiah's not. He's still there for seven more chapters because he hasn't fixed what God sent him there to fix. He thought he was just rebuilding the walls. But the walls are done and the story isn't over yet. And the reason why is that the walls are just a means to an end. The only reason why Nehemiah was sent there to rebuild the walls is because the people were in trouble. The people's relationship with God was in trouble. God's name among the nations was in trouble because his people were in trouble. So he went there to rebuild the walls, but the walls were just a means to an end. He rebuilt the walls so that the people could be restored, so that they could be renewed, so that their relationship with God could be reestablished. And that's what the rest of the book is about. It's about the people renewing their covenant with God and them being reestablished in this city under His authority. The walls just allowed for that to happen. It gave them security. And we're going to see these three things, these three main things that Nehemiah does in chapter 7 point to that. The first thing that he does is he he sets up security on the walls. The walls have been built, but they need guards. He says, I had set up the doors, and then he lists this group of people, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites. They'd been appointed. This, This list 
It's a, it's a familiar list of people in the Old Testament that were worship officials. The gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites. These are the people that he places on the wall. And this doesn't really make much sense. Let's imagine that we're not at the YMCA. We're all on HLG's campus, and there is an army coming to attack us. And we pick somebody, like Tim Fenton, and say, Tim, tell us what to do. We have to defend this campus from this army. And Tim says, I've got an idea. Let's take the Bible majors and the music majors and send them out there to fight for us. Does anybody want to go with Tim's plan? (laughs) This is not the best battle plan. Putting singers, putting priests in charge of wall security does not make sense from a military perspective. But when we think about the fact that wall security is a worship issue, it does make sense. These people, these these worship leaders among the people are in charge of guarding the walls and protecting the city because if that doesn't happen, worship can't happen. If they don't protect the city, if they don't guard the city from their enemies, they cannot be reestablished with God in his presence. They can't have their relationship with him renewed. They can't restore the covenant. The activities at the temple can't be reestablished. They need to protect the city. They need to guard the walls in order for all that to take place. That's why these worship guys are in charge of security, because it's a worship issue. Same thing happens with the governors. Nehemiah says that he gave his brother Hanani and Hananiah. Hanani is the guy that came to him back in chapter 1 and said what was going on in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah takes these two guys and he gives them rulership over Jerusalem. He sets them up as governors. The reason why he can't make them king is because the king of Persia is the king of Judah. He's in charge. And so Nehemiah can only appoint governors, a kind of under king. And the two guys he picks are qualified because, he says, they were more faithful and God-fearing than many. These guys are the guys he elevates to leadership. And that's because whoever's in charge, he needs to help him move the people towards where they're headed. They're not headed to having a king or a governor like all the other nations. They tried that in the Old Testament and it didn't work. He was putting someone in charge that would help lead the people to renew their relationship with God. That's the point of all of this. That's the point of the security on the walls. That's the point of having these leaders in place. And what he does next, the census, that's the point of that. He goes through and he records all these people. We're not going to read it again because I don't want to. But that bit at the end where he talks about how these people were seeking 
verse 64, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. What's happening here, what this, this registration, this genealogy is about, is Nehemiah is, is going through the history books, he's talking to the people, and he's trying to find out who are truly descendants of Judah and who aren't. Who are the true Israelites and who are people from outside? Because at this time, in the Old Testament, the people of God were the descendants of Abraham. And a few, a few people from outside that list that converted to their way of life. And so what Nehemiah is doing here is he's trying to find out. He's making a list down to the person who are the true people of God and who are not. And only those people that are the true people of God are going to be able to live in the city. Everybody else is stuck outside. Everybody else isn't allowed to participate. And the reason why that is is because in order for them to do what they came to do, in order for them to reestablish their relationship with God, they have to be pure as much as they can be. And so they exclude the other nations and only those who are truly the people of God can come and take part in what happens next. And that's going to be them reestablishing their covenant with God, them reestablishing the priesthood, them recommitting to keep the law. They're going to focus on the rest of the book on what it means for them to be God's people. So the question is, what's the point for us? We're not Israel. We're not people who have rebelled against God and had our relationship with him broken because thankfully things don't work like this anymore. God's people aren't specific descendants of some specific guy. We're not names and numbers on a piece of paper. That's not what makes us part of God's kingdom. That's not what makes us part of God's people. What makes us part of God's people is what Christ has done for us. And it doesn't matter whether you're a descendant of Abraham or whether you're a descendant of Bob. That's my dad. What matters is whether or not you're a son or daughter of God because of what Christ has done for you. And so, as I've been thinking this week about how this passage connects to us. I think this idea that the walls are done, but the story isn't over yet should affect the way we view our relationship with God. Because I think that we as Christians have a tendency to view ourselves as much closer to the finish line than we really are. We think we're done. We have the tendency to think that we've arrived. I know that when I was in college, this isn't anything against college students, this is something against me. When I was in college, I thought that I had cornered Christianity. I thought that I had it down, that I was one of the most spiritual people that had ever walked on the face of the earth. And I remember going home and talking to my parents and them thinking that I was self-righteous and thought I was superior, and I did. 
And now, looking back, I know that that absolutely wasn't the case. I wasn't nearly as far along as I thought I was. And so now, when I'm tempted to do the same exact thing I was tempted to do then, I have to remind myself, and you have to remind yourselves, we're not as far along as we think. God doesn't have some Excel spreadsheet with all of our names on it, and as soon as we believe the gospel, he checks a box, and then we're done. That's not how it works. All of us are works in progress. All of us are like Nehemiah 7. The walls might be built, but the story isn't done. There's a whole lot more and a whole lot more important work to be done. You've got to figure, if anybody, if any Christian that's ever lived on the face of the earth had it close to together at the end of their life, it would have been Paul. Right? Paul wrote about a third of the New Testament. He planted loads of churches. He was pretty much single-handedly responsible for spreading the gospel across the face of the known world. So it'd be like if one of us said, I'm going to take the gospel to China, and then I'm going to take it to India, and then I'm going to take it to South America, and then I'm going to take it to North Korea. And after it spreads in all those places, I'll be like Paul. He did insane work for the kingdom. And yet, at the end of his life, he's writing to Timothy, and he describes himself to Timothy. And what he says about himself is that he is the chief of sinners. This guy who wrote most of the New Testament, this guy who planted dozens of churches, this guy who spread the gospel everywhere he possibly could and wanted to where he couldn't, this guy says about himself, I'm the worst. And he's not lying. He's not being falsely humble. He's not fishing for compliments. It's not like he wants Timothy to write back to him and say, oh, Paul, you're not that bad of a guy. You're great. Neither was he objectively comparing himself to everyone who lived because that's impossible. Paul says that he's the worst of the worst. He says that he's the chief sinner because he knows from what he knows about God, from what he knows about God's holiness, and from what he knows about himself, he knows that he knows more about his own sin than he ever will about anyone else's. And even at the end of his life, he knows that his sin is still great. And the same exact thing should be true for us. As we grow in the gospel and as we grow in our understanding of what God has done for us, and as we grow in the knowledge of of who He is and His holiness, what should happen for us is we should become increasingly aware of how bad we are. We should know more of our own sin now than we did when we were first converted. See, the reality is is that if we're living the Christian life, if we're running the Christian race, we should not see the finish line getting closer and closer and closer. We should see it getting further and further away. It's not that we're becoming worse. 
It's that the more we know about him and the more we know about ourselves, the more that we understand that the gap between us is even greater than we originally thought it was. But that doesn't mean that it's impossible. It means that it's impossible without grace. And the more that we know about both of those things and the the further apart they get, it means that his grace is more significant than we knew that it was. The reason why the finish line doesn't get any closer to us is because we don't finish. He finishes for us. He does the work on our behalf. We sit here and we look at it and know that He is doing so much for us. It should cause us to be grateful. Our story isn't done yet. Our story isn't finished yet because He hasn't finished it for us. Scripture tells us that it's those who endure to the end who will be saved. But Paul says, he's writing to the Philippians, he says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. He, God, who began a good work in us will carry it to completion. What's fascinating about that verse is how absent we are from it. He who began a good work in in you, in us, will carry it to completion. The only part we have in that verse is being the location. We're the place that God works. He began the work. He started it. He sent His Son to save us. He opened our eyes. He made our hearts new. He caused us to believe it. He began this work in us. We're just the place. We're just the vessel. And then Paul says that He will carry it to completion by His Spirit, by the continuing grace of the Gospel, because of the good works that He prepared beforehand for us to walk in. He carries it to completion. We're just passengers. And so, when we think about the fact that we are like Jerusalem in Nehemiah 7, that we are like the city that's had its walls rebuilt and yet there's still so much more work to be done. The people are few. The houses haven't been rebuilt. They haven't had their relationship with God reestablished. We should be encouraged that our story isn't done yet. It shouldn't be discouraging to us. We shouldn't have to pretend like we've arrived. We shouldn't have to pretend like we've got it all together. Because we're never going to have it together. But he got it together for us. Let's pray. God, I thank you that that our story isn't over. That we haven't arrived. That we aren't about to finish the race. because you've already done all that work for us. I thank you that our stories only matter because they're part of your story. 
that you sent your Son into the world to save it and to save us. And that you're still saving us. That you are carrying us to completion. That you are carrying this world to completion. And that one day, it will be finished. And we will have the privilege of participating in the new heavens and the new earth where everything is set right and everything is made new. God, we pray that you would continue to grow us. That you would continue by your Spirit to conform us more and more into the image of your Son. That you would keep making known to us who you are and just how holy you are. And that you would keep convicting us of our sin and showing us just how sinful we really are. We pray that you would help us to not be paralyzed by shame or guilt because of our sin, but that it would just cause us to value your grace more, to value Christ more. I pray that it would help us to celebrate all that you've done for us, even though we don't yet know exactly how much that is. It's in your name we pray. Amen.